And what's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the program. It is Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And you can also follow our social pages on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, Great to be back with you folks this week. A lot to get to. There is, you know, all five local teams uh, to talk about, you know, Patriots, Celtics, Bruins, you know, a little bit of Red Sox, a little bit of Revolution, but uh, really excited to get going uh, this week. I want to say thank you again to Adam Taylor uh, for coming on Guest Friday last week. Really uh, great, informative conversation. Um, You can check out Adam's content um, on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Um, Also does the Celtics pod, which is a podcast that he does for the Celtics, uh, for Celtics blog. So you can check that out. It's a great podcast that he does that I've listened to a couple times. Uh, Really informative, really knows his stuff. So that was uh, great talking to him last week. If you haven't listened to that conversation, you can uh, feel free to go listen um, on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. So we're going to get to the Celtics at some point, you know, at a nice preseason uh, first win yesterday. But we're starting with the Patriots. We had a lot to get to, a lot to uh, break down from this game. Obviously, a tough loss for the group, you know, 27-24 overtime loss. You know, I think that Going into this game, I think a lot of people did not really think the Patriots had much of a shot in this game, you know, and I think that I was one to agree, you know, I think that early on, it kind of looked pretty good, you know, Brian Hoyer leads the team down the field, get in field goal range, take the lead, and you're thinking, okay, you know, this team might actually have a chance, Um, you know, then all hell breaks loose, Hoyer gets knocked out of the game, and it's like, okay, here we go. Bailey Zappi having to come in. So um, I think to his credit, Bailey played a really good game. You know, I think that it's hard in that respect because I think that you see a third string or you see a player go into the game and you're thinking, okay, you know, he'll be able to make plays, but it's like, here's a guy who's a third string quarterback, not expected to play at all this season. You know, the Patriots picked him in the fourth round, but kind of as a developmental quarterback to kind of probably ideally to be the number two in a few years behind Mac Jones. He might have to be the number two as early as next week um, or possibly even play. You know, we'll get to Mac Jones and Brian Hoyer in a bit, but I think tremendous poise, you know, obviously had some issues with accuracy, which we saw in the preseason, you know, doesn't really have great pocket awareness, doesn't really feel the rush. And like, you're going to see that with guys like that who come in very, you know, very raw, you know, very raw, very raw in their skills. And, you know, someone that is going to take time, you know, he's not a guy that was drafted with the idea that he was going to play at all this season. You know, you figured if he gets on the field at all, it's to, you know, hand the ball off or take a kneel down at the end of the game. That's the only action he was going to get in in a perfect world, but obviously, you know, next man up had to come in 10 of 15, 99 yards and a touchdown, you know, to Bailey's credit, he played really well. I thought, you know, I think that, yes, there were still some moments where it was like, okay, you can tell that this guy is, you know, I don't want to say rattled, but I think nervous, 
you know, missed a lot of throws. But then also it's like, if you watch the preseason, you could tell that there were a lot of mistakes that he made, and you kind of saw the same thing yesterday. So um, I was impressed with him and impressed that he could come in in a bad spot and be able to keep the game alive. You know, <laughs> there's no reason to believe that this game could have been close. You know, it could have easily gotten from bad to worse. You know, let's say he throws a bad interception. Let's say he, you know, fumbles a snap or something like that. You didn't see him really make any big mistakes. You know, I think the biggest mistake was missing some throws, missing some open receivers, not feeling the rush. But it's like you kind of expect that with a young guy like him and a guy with just this doesn't really have the smarts and the skills that like Mac Jones does. So it's hard to expect a lot from him, but I thought that he played well. You know, I think that for what it's worth, the team played well. And I think that they showed a lot of grit, a lot of heart. And I know a lot of people want to say, oh, well, they're one in three. Who cares about their their effort and this and that? But I think that if you go into that game with Mac Jones as the quarterback and you lose the game 27-24 in overtime, the thought, I think, would be different. I think the thought would be, okay, you had a chance to win this game. You should have won this game. But I think the expectations get a lot less when you're playing with a third-string quarterback and he has to go up with up against Aaron Rodgers on, you know, a tough place to play. So it's like, I think that, yes, it's fair to be like, okay, they're one and three, but it's hard to really be super upset with the game yesterday. Um, you know, I think that when you bring a third-string quarterback, all expectations go out the window and you're like, okay, they just need to keep this close and they need to survive. And I think that they did the best job that they could, you know, Aaron Rodgers, is eventually going to be Aaron Rodgers, and I think that he played well in the second half, played well in overtime, got them in field goal range. So, you know, it's a tough loss, but I think that there's a reason that you can be happy with the way that they played. You can be happy with the effort that they that they played with because they could have easily fallen flat. You know, once Zappy comes in, they could have easily just been like, okay, let's just get out of this game without people getting hurt or without things getting very bad, and I think that to their credit, they did a great job staying in it. I think the coaching staff, this was probably the best, this was probably the most well-coached game that they've, that they've had this season, where it seemed like all elements played well. You know, obviously, there were parts of special teams that I think left a little bit to be desired. You know, Isaiah Wynn didn't have a good game. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but I think got the most out of what they could do defensively, certainly got the most what they could do with the offense. I think that Patricia and Judge, to a lot of people's surprise, I think that they deserve some credit for the way that they, you know, were able to not put too much in Zappi's hands, where I think that, yes, there's a lot that people are going to say about, oh, why aren't you going for it from midfield and overtime? And it's just like, no offense to Zappi, who I thought played well, but it's like, if you saw that previous play on third and five, he misses a wide open Hunter Henry going across the field, you know, and it's just like, those are the types of things where it's like, he's developing, he was not expected to play at all this season. And I think that he misses an open guy, you really want to go for it at fourth and six, where if you don't get it, you're giving Aaron Rodgers 20 yards to get in field goal range, like, 
I don't really understand people being like, oh, like it's so cowardly, like you have to go for it. And it's like, you have to understand, you know, the, you have to understand the game and you have to watch the game and be like, okay, they're playing with a third string quarterback. It's like, you don't want to give Aaron Rodgers the football where he has to get what, two first downs and then the game's over. It's like, yes, I understand that they punted it away. Green Bay was able to score in that possession, but it's like, I guess I don't really understand why that needs to be a thing, you know, unless that it's just, I don't know, Patriots fans that just are, are willing to be miserable more than, you know, being happy with the way that they played yesterday. Obviously, we all don't want them to be one in three. You know, it sucks losing. And it's, you know, a big step down from what this team was a couple of years ago. But it's like, that's football. That's sports. You're not always going to be the best team. You're not always going to have the good breaks, you know, <laughs> happen for you. You know, it's just like, that's just how it goes. But I think that you can feel excited with the way that they played yesterday in really kind of the worst possible circumstances. You know, that you're going into a cup, you're going into a stretch where you have four games in front of you that realistically you should be able to win. You know, you look at three of the next four games, three of the next four games are against Detroit, Chicago, and the Jets. And the other game you have is against Cleveland, and that's on the road. And I think that that's probably going to be a difficult game. But I think that if in any way you could get Mac Jones back for that Cleveland game, I think you have a legitimate chance that you could be able to get back to 500 if you win the next two games. Um, you know, I think that I'm impressed with how Bailey played. You know, I think that clearly he's needs to develop more, and I think that the hope is he doesn't have to play next week, but, you know, we'll kind of see. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but I did also want to say um, plenty, or a couple of the Patriots rookies played really well yesterday. Uh, Jack Jones, obviously, the big story with the pick six and the forced fumble, you know. I think that, you know, the type of player that Jack is, I think, from what we've seen, is he's a guy that's going to gamble a lot. He's going to jump routes, and he's going to make big plays, be a turnover machine, as someone said on Twitter earlier, uh, earlier or like early in the game yesterday. Um, he's going to give up big plays. You know, he's going to make mistakes. He's not the best tackler. You know, I think that he has some shortcomings, but I think like you saw him at his best yesterday, that okay, he's going to be the type of player that he's going to be able to, you know, make you know, jump routes, pick six, you know, force fumble. He's going to be able to do things like that. And I think that that's what the Patriots kind of saw in him, that he's a guy who is just a, a guy that's going to take advantage of mistakes. And I think that you always need guys like that in your defense. And I thought that for the most part, he played a really excellent game, kind of being that number two corner, you know, opposite, um, Jonathan Jones, because the Patriots are missing Jalen Mills, but I thought that Jack played excellent. You know, Marcus Jones was excellent as a punter turner. I mean, I think that, you know, it kind of was about time that they put him in that role. You know, I think that that was part of the reason why they drafted him, you know, as an unbelievable returner um, at Houston, University of Houston. 
um, set a couple records, I believe, as he returned like he returned like five or six kicks for touchdowns in one of his seasons, or maybe that was throughout his college career. But anyway, you know, you could see what the Patriots saw in him as he averaged like 27 yards per kick return, 24 yards on punt returns on a couple of punt returns uh, yesterday. But I think that like he's a guy that they really like. And I think in that role, it's perfect. You know, the Patriots had some adventures with uh, Miles Bryant returning kicks. And I think that the Patriots hopefully have kind of found their guy and found someone that can do that consistently and be able to kind of get the team in good field position because it's like that's what you want kick returners to do is you want them to be able to consistently, if they're taking kicks out of the end zone or if they're taking it from inside the five-yard line, you want to be able to start you know, around the 30, 35-yard line. And I think that you saw Marcus Jones be able to do that a couple times yesterday. And then, you know, he's got great moves, great, in- great instincts, uh, punt returning as well. So I think the Patriots have found a good guy there, you know, and then another draft pick that was great. Cole Strange was really good again, you know, shocking. Um, I just think that we have some people in the Boston media that I think are a little too, pay too much attention to skilled position guys. And they're, you know, blown away by guys that you see playing every day on Saturday in college football or guys that play in, you know, national championship games. And people only see those games and think, oh, okay, the Patriots could use someone like that. You know, George Pickens specifically. And though I don't think he played, I think it was last year, he didn't play for Georgia because I think he was hurt. Um, but like, he's an example where it's like, oh, it's a name from Georgia. Oh, you know, here's a name where it's like, oh, okay, it's a name that I know. So I know that he's going to be a stud, you know? And it's just like, I think it's just a classic example. People didn't know Cole Strange. They didn't know anything about him. Okay, he played at a small school in Tennessee. No one's going to know who he is. But it's just like the Patriots have found a good player. He's been very good. And I think that it's just too bad that we have certain people that get way too, like, oh, my God, like, they need to get, you know, a skill position player or a cornerback or linebacker. And then it's like, you know, or wide receiver even. And it's just like the Patriots, the point of the draft is to draft good players. doesn't matter what position they play. And it kind of is unbelievable that that needs to be explained. But I do think that there are certain people that could not stand that they took a guard um, and did everything they could to make the pick look really bad. And they're kind of the ones that look bad right now because Cole Strange is playing at a really high level. And it's exactly what the Patriots saw when they drafted him. And it's just, I don't know. It's just this idea that, you know, you need to draft a player that I know. And if you don't, then you're bad at drafting or the pick sucks. You know, and look, the Patriots have not had the best luck in terms of drafting in the last couple of years. But I do think if you look at the last two classes specifically, you know, you look at last year's class, Mac Jones and Christian Barmore, you know, this year with, um, you know, Marcus Jones, Jack Jones, Cole Strange. You look at how well some of these guys are playing and how well they're adjusting to the NFL. And like even Zappy, you could even say too, I mean, a guy that gets thrown in with no expectation that he was going to play and honestly held his own. 
you know, clearly still had a lot of struggles, but it's like he looked kind of like he belonged. And it kind of looked like, okay, this is what the Patriots saw in him when they picked him. You know, a guy that can come into a situation where you're playing at Lambeau Field against one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, your third string, and you come in and you give your team a chance to win. So, you know, it kind of was a really a banner day for the Patriots draft picks. You know, it's it's shocking. It just seems like there are too many people that want to see the Patriots draft pick fails uh, or want to see the Patriots fail at drafting players um, and will pretty much do anything they can to tell you that, you know, player A sucks without seeing player A even play a snap on the field. So just kind of interesting to me there. Um, you know, obviously Brian Hoyer leaving the game in the first quarter, you know, was uh, really scary because it was like, okay, you're throwing this kid into the mix with really no idea what's going to happen. He could do really well. He could do really poorly. So uh, the Patriots clearly, you know, worst case scenario, playing your third, your third string quarterback, you know, a week after your starter went down. So, you know, obviously no word about Hoyer other than he probably has head injury you really don't want to speculate anything but you know you have to believe that if he's taken out of the game probably can't play next week but you never know um you know the other thing is mac jones clearly still dealing with the ankle injury and i think it was good to see him throwing at practice on friday but you know it was pretty much just stationary throwing you know, with the ankle heavily taped. So really no idea what his availability is going to be. Um, you could hope that maybe he could play. You know, I know that there was kind of some chatter that, okay, he was going to try to play, um, but he ended up not making the trip to Green Bay. So I do think the Patriots are hoping that he can come back soon enough where he doesn't have to go on IR. So, you know, I don't expect that he's going to play on Sunday. I do think that there's a very good chance that we see Zappi start, um, you know, which will be interesting. But then again, you're going against D Detroit defense that is one of the, if not the worst defense in the league. They're giving up, you know, they're, they're giving up a lot of yards, giving up almost 300 yards passing per game, 165 yards allowed rushing. So I honestly don't think the quarterback necessarily matters because I think the Patriots should be able to do pretty much anything they want on offense. And I think that, yes, obviously Detroit's been putting up a lot of points, but, you know, haven't really played the defense as good as the Patriots. So, you know, that will be interesting to see just kind of who's healthy and who can play. I can't imagine that you're going to hear anything this week that, you know, oh, so-and-so is available to play you probably aren't going to be able to hear anything until Friday. Um, so, you know, definitely keep an eye on that. But I do think that no matter who the quarterback is, the Patriots should be able to beat the Detroit Lions. Um, so curious to see who's available, who can play. Uh, you know, I think that you want to be careful with Hoyer. I think especially if there's a head injury and, you know, a possibility of a concussion. I think that, you know, clearly the league is trying to take the, you know, in-game head injuries very seriously, which I think that based, you know, after the Tua thing, you know, the league is going to be very strict at like, okay, you got to, 
take guys out of games. But I also think that, you know, the Patriots are an organization that they take it seriously. So, you know, I think even if there wasn't the Tua situation that happened, they still would have taken Hoyer out of the game. So, you know, be interesting to see, you know, if he can be available, if Max available. I mean, I think the Patriots do have to consider, potentially consider the possibility of having to sign someone off the street, you know, especially if Mac and Hoyer, you know, can't play because you do need a backup quarterback in case, you know, God forbid anything happens to Zappi. Uh, but I think that they do need to consider that, you know, be curious to see if they uh, decide to do anything there. Um, the other, you know, really kind of impressive part of the game yesterday was the run game. Patriots really seemed to kind of get, get into a rhythm you know, 167 yards on the ground. I really think that it was their best game um, in terms of the running, rushing attack. So, you know, Harris had a great game. Stevenson was good. You know, Kendrick Bourne even got a carry on an end around, so that was good to see. So, you know, they're running the ball effectively, running the ball against a pretty good Green Bay defense. I was really surprised with how well they were able to run the ball. So, you know, that tells you that they're figuring things out. You know, there was a lot of concern in training camp about the, you know, zone blocking and run blocking and that specifically that, you know, you saw a lot of reports that, oh, you know, they can't run the ball. But, you know, I think that those reports may have been a little bit exaggerated because you can see that they're able to run the ball really effectively and, you know, run the ball against one of the better defensive units in the league. So I was impressed. You know, I think that uh, Marcus Cannon, him coming back, was huge yesterday you know him getting snaps is kind of that extra offensive lineman so you know that was good to see you know I think that it was a great decision to bring him back um, and I think that you could see him be kind of a regular on um, the Patriots line I think especially if Isaiah Wynn continues to struggle you know that was really kind of the one really bad spot of that game yesterday that he got beat for a couple of sacks had a couple penalties, and I just think that he's one of those guys, and I was thinking about this yesterday, he's one of those guys that, for the most part, you know, does his job and does his job as solidly, you know, never going to make the Pro Bowl, never going to be an All-Pro, but I think that does his job solidly. He's a decent offensive lineman, although when things get bad, they get really bad, and I think you saw him probably at his worst yesterday, which is really unfortunate because, you know, one of those sacks did lead, to, did lead to Hoyer getting knocked out of the game, you know, and I think he just struggled the majority of the game, you know, kind of necessitating the need for someone like Marcus Cannon. But I think that his elevation to the active roster yesterday was more because the Patriots were going to run the ball a lot in this game, which they did, and so it made sense to elevate him. So, It'd be interesting what you know what happens next if the Patriots feel comfortable enough that Marcus Cannon can slide in and be the right tackle once again. You know, that's gonna kind of be interesting to see if Isaiah Wynn continues to have issues there. Uh, but I thought the run game for the most part was excellent. You know, really did a great job of being, you know, allowing the team to be able to stay in the game and being able to have a chance to win because if the Patriots couldn't run the ball effectively yesterday, you know, this game would have been over very quickly. So, you know, I think they deserve a lot of credit. I think the defense, for how well they played in the first half, they deserve a lot of credit. 
I think for the most part, they played a really excellent game. You know, Jack Jones, kind of the story of the game, I think, defensively. But, you know, Matt Judon was good, had a sack. Juwan Bentley, Adrian Phillips, Jelani Tavai, you know, slid right in and had a really good game as uh, Raekwon McMillan missed another game. So I thought that he slid in and played really well. He had eight tackles, which was uh, tied for the second most in the game yesterday. yesterday. So I thought a good game from him. You know, looking closer at this Detroit Lions team, I do think the Patriots are getting them at a good time because they are hurting a little bit. Uh, DeAndre Swift, I think, is going to be out for a couple of weeks, so that's huge because he's Detroit's number one back. Jamal Williams actually has been, statistically, has actually been better than Swift this season. Uh, he has six touchdowns, so he's a guy that the Patriots do need to do a good job of bottling up. TJ Hawkinson obviously had a monster game yesterday for the Lions as they won, or lost, excuse me, to the Seahawks. 48 to 45, so he's a guy that they need to shut down, but, you know, curious about the health of Amon Ross St. Brown, who missed the game yesterday. Uh, don't know about his availability for the Patriots game, but he's another guy that they have to kind of be be careful of. Um, it was kind of a surprise to see Jalen Mills out of the game yesterday. Um, you know, hopefully it's not anything serious. He can come back. Jacoby Myers also missed the game as well, so you could hope the Patriots could get him back as soon as possible, but, you know, as much as the Patriots might have to go into this game again with Zappi, you know, I don't feel too bad. I mean, the Lions definitely have been competitive this year more than in recent years, but they're still just an awful defensive team. I mean, they're allowing 450 yards per game. You know, that's not a misprint. You know, that's like the Patriots should be able to control the ball, control the clock. You know, I think the defense will have another good game, you know, especially if they can get Mills back. You know, it's good to see Kyle Duggar returning to the game or return to the team this week. So, you know, hopefully they can get some defensive, they can get some guys back. And, you know, I don't think that this is going to be a necessarily challenging game for the Patriots. But I think, again... You gotta, you gotta, gotta take care of the football, and I think that that's the biggest thing. You know, obviously there was a fumble yesterday where Isaiah Wynn got beat, and then Zappi got sacked, lost the football. So I do think that they can, you know, hang on to the football, play good, sound defensive football. They should be able to win um, against the Lions. So. That game is next Sunday, 1 o'clock at Gillette Stadium, Patriots-Lions. Game is on Fox. So now we're going to move on. We're going to talk a little bit about the Celtics, who opened their preseason yesterday with a win over the Charlotte Hornets, 134-93. to Really not much of a game. Um, the Celtics were great in this game. It was great to see. The guys back and playing. Great to see them playing in front of the garden crowd, playing, um, playing at the garden for the first time since Game Six of the Finals. So um, good to see that they could come back, play a good, solid game. You know, it is just preseason. You know, results of games don't really mean much. You know, but I think that it is good to see that. Okay, they could start out and start out really well. You know, I think it would be 
a little bit concerning, you know, if they came out and struggled for offense, but I think it's just good to see that, okay, there are guys that are legitimately locked in and ready to play. You know, look no further than Jalen Brown, who had 24 points in 24 minutes, you know, looking exactly like the guy who was really good for the Celtics team um, in the finals. Um, I think that, you know, he looked ready. Grant Williams looked ready. Um, everyone kind of just looks ready to go. And I think that that's huge because that then that, then that means that this team can kind of, you know, hit the ground running when the regular season starts and, you know, can be able to kind of be confident that, okay, we kind of have our legs under us. We're shooting well. We're playing well on offense that they can kind of just, you know, start the season off and start it on a roll, you know, and hopefully be in rhythm. And then once Rob Williams comes back, they can be even better. So I was really impressed with how well they moved the ball offensively. You know, I think that the way that they shot, you know, 22 made threes, that's probably not going to happen every game. But I do think that the way they moved the ball was great. You know, it really seemed like they were in rhythm. There were a lot of guys that, you know, did a great job facilitating for other guys. You know, everyone in the starting lineup had an assist. Malcolm Brogdon had nine assists in his first game. You know, so I think that you saw an offense that looked like, okay, they're going to play maybe a little bit quicker, you know, trying to play in transition more and trying to have less of, you know, the isolation ball. But then again, you know, I do think that we saw this team play in postseason basketball for months. And so I think you can clearly see that, okay, the way that basketball is played in the postseason is so much different than it's played in the regular season or the preseason, you know, so that you can get out and transition more, you know, you can play with quicker pace. You can't really do that in the playoffs. You know, a lot of what happens in the playoffs is a lot of, you know, half-court offense and kind of not a lot of fast-break stuff, but it was good to see that the Celtics moved the ball well, could move the ball well in half-court um, as well, you know, get good shots for people. So I think the important thing is you want to see the offense move the ball well, you know, <laughs> Even without Rob Williams, I don't have concerns about this team's defense. You know, you have a starting five that, you know, the starting five that played yesterday. We'll talk about the lineups in a couple minutes. But you had a starting five that, you know, legitimately, you could see all five of those guys starting yesterday. They could legitimately make an all-NBA defensive team, like first or second team. You could see all five of these guys making a all defensive team. You know, I think that's how deep and how good they are defensively. So I have no concerns really defensively. I think really it's the offense that you want to see them moving the ball, making shots, making things easier for Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. So, you know, Brogdon was great. Grant Williams was great. Peyton Pritchard was really good. Um, you know, great to see a couple of guys knock down a lot of threes. Sam Hauser. Yeah, he can shoot it. Made four for was four for five uh, from three point land. So going to be interesting to see, you know, how much he plays in the preseason, how much he plays in the regular season. You know, does he get minutes off the bench? Um, but really impressed with how they played yesterday. And clearly, they're not going to score one hundred thirty four points every game. But I think it's just good to see that okay, they're good. 
they're locked in, they're ready to go, be curious to see, you know, what they look like in the other preseason games. Uh, Celtics will believe that they host the Raptors on Wednesday night, um, then they will travel to Charlotte Friday night, um, and then the following Friday they'll take on Toronto, and that's their last preseason game. So only two games against the Hornets, two against Toronto, and then the season opener October 18th against the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, one of the other bits of Celtics news, the Celtics uh, coming to terms with Blake Griffin, signing him to a one-year deal uh, for a vet minimum that came in on Friday. So, you know, I'll just stop you right there. It's not the Blake Griffin that you remember. He's not going to be jumping over cars <laughs> for the Celtics, but um, I think that it's a good, solid vet signing. You know, I think that I talked a lot about Dwight Howard, DeMarcus Cousins. You know, Adam and I talked about that a little bit on Guest Friday. But I think that here's Blake Griffin, a guy that I completely forgot he was a free agent. It just totally slipped my mind. Um, but I think that it's a great signing. You know, I think that he's a guy that is not going to be expected to play a lot of minutes. You know, you're basically asking him to play. Daniel Tice's minutes, you know, 15, 18 minutes a night, you know, someone that can move the ball, you know, he's a really effective passer. And I think that's the reason why the Celtics made this addition, because Blake, honestly, is a very underrated passer, you know, he's a really good passing big man. And I think the Celtics need guys that can distribute the ball well. And look, they're not asking Blake Griffin to take the ball you know, bring it up court. They're not asking him to do that, but I do think that he's a guy that can keep the ball moving, you know, is going to be a guy that can shoot a little bit. You know, you're not asking him to take four threes a game, but I think that he's a guy that can make open shots. He can give you a little bit of, um, a little bit of rebounding, um, give you some hustle, you know, great passer, um, you know, He's a solid defender. I think that defending bigs, he's a fairly solid defender. I mean, yes, Jalen Brown did cook him in the playoffs, but, you know, I think that ideally you're not seeing him play major minutes when the postseason comes. Um, but the other part about this is I think Blake's a good guy, and I think that he's a good kind of locker room guy. I think he's a guy that, you know, will fit in when, fill, will fit in well with the culture you know, you saw him greet Jalen Brown yesterday before the game. Um, but I think that he is a guy that is coming here wanting to win. And I think that that's kind of the best case scenario with these vet minimums guys, these vet minimum guys, that they come to a team wanting to win, you know, and willing to sacrifice and willing to kind of do whatever it takes to win. And I think that that's what you're seeing with Blake. I think that that was the reason why he signed on with Brooklyn. Um, and I think it's the same reason he's signing on with the Celtics that it gives him a chance to win. And I think that certainly maybe he's a guy that does take, takes himself too seriously, like off the court, you know, people might not like him, but I think that he's a guy that's going to bring professionalism and is going to be a good guy to just have around the team. Um, and I think, also is a guy that takes a lot of charges and I think that he could become a fan favorite in Boston you know if he hustles and gives his all which you know you've seen you've seen at times with Brooklyn that he's a guy that 
will go all out to make plays. And I think that it could be it could be a, a signing that not a lot of people think is going to matter, but I think that he could help in terms of just having another body in terms of your bigs during the regular season. You know, and I think that not a guy that's going to start, I would be surprised if he does, but I think just kind of being another big that can come in off the bench, give you 15 to 18 minutes, can shoot a little bit, can rebound, can pass, you know, defend a little bit. I think that for the role that you're asking him to do, I think it makes a lot of sense. You're asking him to come off the bench, you know, maybe be that second big that comes off the bench. You know, if you consider Grant Williams a big, which some people might not, um, in that case, you know, maybe Blake's the second or third guy you see coming off the bench. But I think that in this role, he's going to be really effective. So um, I like that signing. Uh, Celtics also, you know, in the preseason game yesterday, uh, one of the guys that's on a two-way contract had a really good game. I thought that uh, Fiondu Cavangeli, who uh, you might remember played at Florida State a number of years ago, was the 27th overall pick in 2019, uh, signed with the Celtics after um, a pretty strong summer league. Um, he played really well yesterday. You know, he made a couple of great hustle plays, was diving on the floor, had a couple tunks, um, just played with a lot of great hustle. And I think that he is exactly what you want to see with someone who's on a two-way, um, just playing like he wants a spot. And I think, you know, obviously the Celtics, you could see what the Celtics saw in him with the way that he played yesterday. Um, so I hope that, you know, you see him maybe a little bit in Boston, but uh, that was great to see. And it was great to see that, you know, fans kind of acknowledged the hustle that he played with. You know, that's one of the things with, with the Celtics is the fan base is very, very intelligent. You know, people that watch games and can recognize that, okay, here's a guy that's playing his heart out. And I think, you know, hopefully you see him a little bit in Boston, you know, is on a two-way deal. So you only will see him in Boston for part of the season. Uh, he's a guy that's played in uh, 51 career games with the Clippers and the Cavs. Uh, but I do think that there's a possibility that he's another guy that could see some minutes uh, considering how kind of thin the Celtics are um, with their bigs. But I thought it was great to see how well he played you know, knock down a three yesterday. He can do that. He's a guy that can shoot. So um, really liked how he played the other guy in a two-way deal. J.D. Davison, the Celtics' uh, only draft pick, played really well yesterday. You know, again, you can see why the Celtics, you know, believe in him as a player, that he can be a guy that, you know, can get to the basket, can play aggressive defense. You know, a guy that really kind of fits into exactly what the Celtics want to do. So um, I was really impressed and pleased with his game as well. Um, you know, an interesting thing to watch for in the preseason, and this is something that Adam and I talked about, is paying attention to what the lineups look like and who plays with who, you know, who comes out with who. And I think you saw the first look at a potential starting five uh, with Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Al Horford, um, and Derek White. So I think if the Celtics go with that potential starting lineup, it gives you the ability to bring Grant Williams off the bench. It obviously gives you the ability to bring Brogdon off the bench, which I think is 
why you signed him. You know, you brought him in to be that sixth man, someone that can play with the second unit, be kind of a source of instant offense, can be a guy that can make things easier for Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum, you know, whoever's on the floor at the time. So I think that Brogdon is pretty much solid into that sixth man role. And so it means the Celtics could potentially start Derek White in certain games. Could they start Grant Williams in certain games? I think that that's a possibility. I don't think, me personally, I don't think that you're going to see a double big lineup with Grant or with uh, Al Horford and like Luke Cornett, for example, who um, has played pretty well in training camp. Unfortunately, he's got um, an ankle injury, so you might not see him for a little bit in the preseason. Hopefully he can get into a game at some point. Um, but I think that most likely you should see a lineup where Al Horford and Jason Tatum are kind of your four and five and the Celtics, you know, have Derek White in as kind of that second guard with Marcus Smart. You know, I think that that's probably the lineup that makes the most sense. But, you know, if you're going up against a team that has a lot of size, you know, let's say like the Sixers, you know, Joel Embiid is a monster. And I think that you need as many bigs as you can get. The Celtics may look to start Grant Williams in a game like that. You know, maybe they start Derek White in a game where the team that they're playing doesn't have a lot of size. You know, I think that when the Celtics play Cleveland, clearly Grant Williams is going to need to be in the starting line because the Cavs, you know, are going to start Jared Allen and Evan Mobley. So, you know, that will be interesting to see. But it was interesting to see that, you know, Derek White's kind of that guy that might be getting starts. Um, but who knows? It is just the first preseason game. Joe Missoula could be toying around with different lineups. Um, but I do think you're going to see different types of starting lineups and, you know, different guys come in off the bench. That's the great thing about preseason is you get the opportunity to see a lot of different guys play. So uh, very curious to see what goes on the next couple of games. Celtics will uh, host Toronto on Wednesday night. Then they're going to Charlotte on Friday. So two preseason games this week that you can tune into. So now we're going to get to the Bruins. Uh, very excited to get to talking about the Bruins. Um, some tough injury news, unfortunately, um, as Taylor Hall has been ruled week to week as he has suffered um, an upper body injury in the Bruins preseason game against the Flyers on Saturday afternoon. So, you know, obviously that's difficult because the Bruins are already going into the season, you know, minus three very important players. And now there's a possibility you could go in with four guys that are out. So, you know, there were a couple plays in Saturday's game where Paul, I think, took a check into the boards. And then there was a play where he took a stick up high um, and then landed kind of weird. You could see him kind of twisting his body on the bench. So, you know, again, don't want to speculate about injuries, but distinct possibility he has like a oblique or like a rib injury or something like that. So you got to hope that it's nothing too serious and he can come back soon, but um, it definitely makes things a little more complicated in terms of the Bruins top six where, you know, it was pretty, pretty well decided that, you know, Taylor Hall was going to be your number two left wing skating with David Krejci and David Pasternak, and that was going to be a line that you were not going to have to be concerned about that, okay, here are three guys that are comfortable with each other. 
you know, have experience playing with each other. And so you were thinking, okay, that's a line that is going to be a line that you can easily, you could have penciled in the moment that David Krejci signed with the Bruins, to be honest. So, um, you know, it's a tough go. You know, I think the Bruins are likely to put Pavel Zaka on a line with Krejci and Pasternak, which will be fun because all three of those guys are from the Czech Republic. So uh, it'll be kind of interesting to see the type of chemistry that they have, Krejci and Pasternak. You know the chemistry they have, but I think that, you know, Zaka has the potential to be really good on that line. You know, I was hoping that there could be a chance for the three of them to play on a line at some point this season. Clearly, we're probably going to see it opening night if Taylor Hall is going to be out for a bit. But, you know, I think that I'm excited to see um, what Zaka can do. And obviously, the first line now becomes interesting with, you know, Zaka being bumped down to the second line. Jake DeBrusque, Patrice Bergeron will be on that top line. And then there's kind of a, you know, open spot here for someone to kind of grab an even bigger opportunity. Um, you know, the left wings on the roster currently, you have, you know, A.J. Greer, you have uh, Nick Foligno, who can play both wings, um, and then you have Trent Frederick. Um, and honestly, those are not really necessarily fantastic options to play on your first line, but I think that it's going to be what it's going to be. I mean, I do think that I kind of prefer Trent Frederick to play with Coyle and Smith again, because I think at times last year, that was a really solid line. And I think that, you know, the Bruins and Jim Montgomery want to see more out of Trent Frederick. And I think playing him with two guys that he's familiar with uh, could really help out. So I'll be honest, um, I really can't see Nick Foligno being anywhere other than the fourth line or possibly the third line, you know, if there's an injury. So it kind of means that A.J. Greer, who played really, really well um, in that preseason game against the Rangers last week, had a couple goals, including the game winner, had a couple big hits, um, that he might be the guy that gets an opportunity to play with Bergeron and Jake DeBrusque. So, you know, I think the Bruins are just going to kind of make do with what they have. Uh, but I'll just be honest, A.J. Greer, I was very impressed with um, his tenacity, the way that he played um, last Monday night. Be curious to see how he does as he's actually in the lineup uh, for tonight's game. We're going to take a look at the, uh, the roster for tonight in a moment, but I think he's been really good in training camp. He's, you know, turned a lot of heads with how well he's played. Uh, Mark McLaughlin has also been great, had a couple goals um, on Saturday's game against, in Saturday's game against the Flyers, I thought he was really good. Uh, Johnny Beecher, I think, got a, I think got a chance to show off some of his skills with a couple goals on Saturday as well. So, you know, I think now the injury to Taylor Hall kind of makes things a little bit more interesting with the bottom six. But, I mean, the Bruins have a lot of guys that could realistically challenge for spots in the bottom six. You know, I do think that it's pretty fair to pencil in Charlie Coyle and Craig Smith as your center and your right wing on your third line. But realistically, the other four spots, third line, left wing, and then the entire fourth line is kind of just, you know, open for competition. And I do think that one of the interesting things about a coaching change is, you know, Jim Montgomery, he's not really tied to 
any of the guys that are on this roster, you know, he's not really tied to Nick Foligno. He's not really tied to a Chris Wagner or Tomas Nosek, you know, the NHL guys who have played. He's not really tied to those guys. Now, Nick Foligno is a guy that I think is going to stick around. I think just based on the fact that he is a really great locker room guy to have around, and I think that that's a big part of the reason why the Bruins signed him, you know. I still kind of have issues with the $3.8 million that he's making, but I think that to his credit, he is a great guy to have, and I think that does really want to try, and I think that Montgomery does want to kind of give him a second chance, um, but I do think, like, no second Wagner, very curious to see what happens with them. You know, Chris Wagner, we know what he can do, throws his body around, plays hard. You know, Nosek, I think, did not have a great year last year, but I do think that there's merit to keeping him on the roster. You know, he kills penalties. He's a left-shot center, and I think the Bruins kind of do want to have someone else that can be effective in the face-off dot. And, you know, he's a guy that it's probably... You know, it's probably likely that he makes the roster, I think, just on the merit of being a left-shot center and a guy who can kill penalties because I think, to be perfectly honest, the Bruins don't have another player that has that skill set. You know, Johnny Beecher is the only other left-shot guy who can play center, um, you know, unless you count Trent Frederick, who, you know, I don't think is going to be playing at center. I think the Bruins are going to be wanting him to be more of a winger so I think as good as Beecher has looked um, in the preseason games I do think that with him being you know non-eligible for waivers there's no reason that you can't send him down to Providence because I think um, it's something that Ty Anderson said on a podcast that it probably makes more sense to have him playing 15 to 18 minutes a night in Providence than, you know, maybe playing 11 minutes here in Boston and, you know, not being a regular in the lineup. But I do think that you want to keep some NHL experience on the roster. Um, and so I think no second makes sense to keep him. Um, but in terms of kind of the other guys, you know, Michael Hoffman's another great example of a player that kind of was coming into camp as being a possibility for someone that could play uh, bottom six minutes, you know, he's been excellent. He's really, he's really um, giving the coaching staff, you know, a good reason to not send him back to Providence. You know, he's another guy that though is not eligible for waivers, so the Bruins can send him down uh, without the possibility of him being picked up by another team. So, you know, he's a guy that likely will start the year in Providence, but I think unless he really plays well in these last preseason games, you could see him being the starting right wing on the fourth line. Um, and he's also a guy that I think has experience of playing all three of those forward positions can be a wing on either side, can be a center, um, and is a guy that, kind of like Chris Wagner, 
plays really hard and I think that understands his role and is always going to give you good hustle. So, you know, he's another guy that I'm curious to see. Uh, Jack Stednika is another name where I think that you kind of want to see him and see what he can do in these final preseason games. I do think that, unfortunately, he might be squeezed out of the starting lineup. I think just the fact that he doesn't really have a lot of experience killing penalties, you know, he's not really a left shot, but I do think that the Bruins will want to keep him on the roster, maybe not be a guy that's a lineup regular, but be a guy that is kind of an extra forward in case someone gets hurt. Um, But I think that the Bruins want to see him at center versus him on the wing, and so I think that kind of limits where he can go. But I do think that with him being waivers eligible, I don't really want, I don't really want the Bruins to put him on waivers because I have a good feeling he's going to get picked up. Um, you know, I think, unfortunately, Oscar Steen might be one of the guys that gets squeezed out. You know, I think that he does have some NHL experience, but I think he and Stidnik are very similar. And, you know, Steen, I think, really needs to impress in these preseason games. I think that there is a distinct possibility that he could possibly get traded because he, as well as Stidnika, they are both waivers eligible. And I think the Bruins really don't want to risk losing one of those guys for nothing. You know, I think that Steen is the more likely guy that's going to get traded because I think, again, you don't want to lose him for nothing. But I do think that with the upside for Jack Stidnika, I think that he has more merit to stay. But who knows? You know, it'll be interesting to see what happens as kind of the final cuts of preseason come in. Um, But, you know, these are not easy decisions. You know, these are not decisions that, you know, you can easily pencil in and be like, okay, we're going to do this and do this. Um, Because at the end of the day, you know, these guys are human beings. And I think, like, there's kind of that element of that that you have to deal with and you know it's never fun to deal with things like this but I think the good thing is the Bruins have options Um, and I think that yes kind of in your bottom six there almost always are options Um, but I think that having kind of a bevy of guys that legitimately can play in the NHL I think makes you feel confident that okay the Bruins might be able to have a pretty good group of four lines, you know, at points this season. So uh, curious to see what ends up happening. Um, The Bruins did release their uh, roster for tonight's game in New Jersey. Uh, Bruins will be playing Devils 7 o'clock start on Nesson Plus. If you were into that sort of thing, um, I feel like the... I'm looking in the wrong place. So here is the roster for tonight's game in New Jersey. The forwards that are expected to be uh, available. John Johnny Beecher, uh, Charlie Coyle, Trent Frederick, A.J. Greer, uh, Vinny Letary, Mark McLaughlin, Tomas Nosek, uh, Stanika, Steen, Craig Smith. Those are a couple names. Um, then defensively, Connor Carrick. Connor Clifton, Mike Riley, Jack Ashan will be some of the defensemen, and then Kyle Kaiser and Keith Kincaid are the goalies tonight. So 
you know, big opportunity for a lot of these guys that we just recently mentioned, you know, Beecher, McLaughlin, Frederick, No Sex, Dean, Stadnika, AJ Greer, um, you know, kind of huge opportunities for some of these guys, because I do think that this could be a potential, like, last kind of showcase game for guys that are competing for spots in the bottom six, because I do think at some point the Bruins are going to, you know, treat one of these or two of these games as kind of regular season rehearsals. So, you know, this really could be a last opportunity for someone like an Oscar Steen or Jack Stabnika, uh to really kind of show what they can do. And the Bruins, you know, may be forced to make a tough decision um, based on how both of those guys perform tonight. Uh, the Bruins will play their final two preseason games Wednesday night in New York against the Rangers. And then Saturday, the Bruins host the Devils, and that will close out their preseason. So uh, one last little note, I think that Jakob Zaborl continues to play really good hockey for the Bruins defense. Um, and I think that, you know, there was a, a note from uh, Bruins Network on Twitter. You should definitely follow him. One of the best uh, Bruins follows on Twitter. Um, and he mentioned that Jakob Zaborl played a pretty good amount of penalty killing time um, in Saturday's game against the devil uh, against the Flyers um, and I think that that was very interesting because I think I think when you initially think about the Bruins defense and you think about okay once the healthy guys return who's going to be the odd man out I think that all signs have pointed to Mike Riley but something I thought about on Saturday was if the Bruins feel comfortable enough that Jakob Zaborl can kill penalties and kill penalties consistently, the Bruins might be in a spot where they could move someone like Derek Forbert, where I really appreciated what he did last year. I think that he was uh, one of the most underrated Bruins defensemen, was great killing penalties, was great blocking shots. Uh, but I think that if Zaborl can emerge and be someone that what we've seen, a guy that can play top four minutes, and can kill penalties, you know, Derek Forbert might be a guy that gets pushed out of here with the emergence of Zaborl, because I do think that there is merit to keeping someone like Mike Riley because he's a great puck mover, because he's so good at activating in the offensive zone as a defenseman. You've seen him plenty of times, you know, pinch down the wall or get forward to the goal line. And I think that Jim Montgomery, with the way that the Bruins want to get their defensemen more involved offensively, the Bruins may be in a position where they want to keep Riley, you know, and, you know, Forbert's a guy that has kind of just been a stay-at-home guy his whole career, and he's been very good at it, but, you know, he is kind of on the slower side, and I think the Bruins may want to consider moving him if they want to kind of have more of their defensemen activated and being more interested in kind of getting joining the rush mike riley has no problem doing that as we've seen um you know has has made his fair share of mistakes but um, i do really like what we've seen from zamoral and i think that there's a possibility that he could push one of those defensemen out of here uh, with how well he's playing in the situations that he's playing in as well he's seen some uh, power play time here and there so 
Really like what I've seen from him. Uh, really excited to see what we have in store for the next couple preseason games. You know, I do think that you are very likely to see the regulars play Wednesday night and Saturday, you know, their final preseason games. Would be great to see David Pasternak get into a game. We have not seen that yet this preseason. And, you know, hopefully he can get into a game and uh, have a have a new contract. Um, you know, I think that would be great to see if the Bruins can get that done at some point before the regular season hits. So I think that's going to do it for the Bruins. We're going to move quickly to the Red Sox. And uh, thankfully, the season is almost over with the Red Sox getting swept in Toronto this weekend after a series where they took three out of four against the uh, Baltimore Orioles. So things stand. Three games to go. Red Sox playing um, at Fenway against the Tampa Bay Rays. 75 and 84 after the three-game sweep in Toronto. And thank God this, the uh, Red Sox are done playing the Toronto Blue Jays because they won a grand total of three games against them this year. Three and 16. You know, really just kind of a a picture of how bad they were against the division this year. Um, you know, it's unfortunate because I think that this was a season that I think started with a lot of hope that, okay, the Red Sox are really kind of starting to turn a corner in terms of, you know, getting away from that disastrous 2020 season um, and, you know, playing in postseason baseball. And I think, unfortunately, things just kind of got away from them. You know, they never could get into a rhythm playing against any of these division teams. Um, so I think, you know, that's kind of the, the story of the season. Unfortunately, you know, the injuries piled up at a really bad time for this team. I think that that was also part of the reason why they struggled. You know, I think that not having a rotation that really was consistent throughout the year, you know, obviously you did have some good performances. I think that Michael Waka was obviously amazing this year. He was easily the Red Sox' best starting pitcher. You know, Rich Hill showed flashes at times. But then again, like, you can't really expect a lot from a guy like that. But I thought that, to his credit, he pitched well in some games. Um, you know, Nick Pavetta, I thought, was decent at times. But he, again, really struggled against division teams. So... You know, I thought that overall he had a good season, but did not pitch well against any of the division teams this year. So, um, you know, really seemed like the offense, you saw a huge, you know, kind of power outage in terms of home runs. The Red Sox really didn't hit a lot of home runs this year. And, you know, they still were able to score a decent amount of runs. But, you know, the power was down for J.D. Martinez. It was kind of the same for Bogarts. You know, I think that, Obviously, he's had a good season, you know, in was in contention for the American League batting title. Um, you know, Devers was solid, but, you know, outside of that, the Red Sox offense really couldn't get anything consistent from anyone else. You know, it seemed like we barely saw Trevor Story this year. He only played in 94 games. You know, the project at first base clearly didn't work out. Um, you know, Jackie Bradley 
didn't really work out, ended up being traded. So, you know, you, you did your without Kike Hernandez for a majority of the year. Um, it just seemed like, you know, once the Red Sox had that good stretch of play in May and June, you were like, okay, they've kind of turned the corner here. And then right around the All-Star break, everyone started missing games with the injury. So, you know, it kind of seemed like the season just kind of got away from them. So um, it's too bad. But I think this is a team that I think can still be a team that can compete next year. Um, and I still think that you make the correct moves with this team. And mind you, there are a lot of there are a lot of things that they have to correct. But I think if they do the right things, there's no reason to believe that they can't be right back in contention next season. Um, I think that, as I've said many times, I think you want to keep that infield strong. You want to keep Bogarts and Devers. You know, get those guys signed. Keep Story again. He was excellent defensively at second base. You keep him there. Hopefully his offensive numbers return to normal next year. Hopefully he can stay healthy. And, you know, hopefully you can stick Tristan Casas at first base and be comfortable with what you have at that position. Um, I think that that's kind of the biggest thing. The first two things, got to keep Rafi and Sander with this team. You just have to. Um, and then I think you start looking, okay, how do we replace DH? Do we go out and sign someone? You know, they clearly need more power. They need to go sign someone. You know, be interesting to see what they do in the outfield. Do they think that they can go sign someone to play right field? You know, I think that I don't have an issue with Verdugo as a player. I think he's solid. You know, you have Kike in center field. He's been really good defensively when he's been healthy. So, you know, I think you figure out what you can do to add another bat. I do think that you probably do need to add another arm in the rotation, especially if you lose both Evaldi and Waka to free agency. I think that there's no reason for the Red Sox to not bring back Michael Waka. He's been their best starter this year. You know, Pavetta's probably back. Um, and then, you know, what do you do with Chris Sale? You know, obviously he's coming back. You know, I didn't mean it like, okay, they're going to trade him, but I meant like, what are you going to, what can you expect from him? You know, do we see Brian Bayo in the rotation? Um, I think that they do, I would like for them to sign someone. I think even if they lose out, even if they don't lose out on Evaldi and Waka, you know, I think that I don't know about Nathan Evaldi. He is really such a big question mark in terms of a free agent, whether he comes back or not. I don't really think J.D. Martinez is coming back. I'd be shocked if the Red Sox want to keep him. But I think of all the, their pros and cons to keeping him. And I think the pros are, when he's been healthy, he's pitched well. You know, he's been one of your best postseason performers in the last couple of years. But he is older. He has known injury issues. And I think those are kind of big big questions and so what's the story with him you know do the Red Sox expect that (laughs) 
do the Red Sox expect that Chris Sale is going to come back into the rotation? You know, do they expect him to be their number one starter? Or is there something else that they do? You know, there are questions around him, and I think it would make a lot of sense for the team to go out and sign someone um, as a starting pitcher, um, throw money at someone, maybe. You know, and then you got the bullpen, and that needs to have a serious overhaul. You know, that's not something that the Red Sox are going to spend a lot of money on, but they have to start, they have to get some good, solid, good, solid guys. I think that they have pieces to a decent bullpen, but they really need to kind of nail it down and make sure that this is a consistent group that can get guys out because you've not seen that this year. They've cost the Red Sox a lot of games. So there do, there do, there do need to be changes there. Uh, but I also think there's a reason to be excited about next year because you have some potential young guys that could come in and be contributors for you. You know, Connor Wong is a guy that I don't think there's any reason to believe that he can't be kind of a platoon guy with Reese McGuire next year. You know, Brian Bayo, I think there's a legitimate chance he's in your starting rotation next year. Um, and Cassis, I think that all signs point to him being your first baseman next year. You know, what do the Red Sox do with Eric Hosmer? I think he is going to play in the final homestand of the year, so it'd be interesting what their thoughts are with him. You know, could they open a year with him and Cassis kind of being a platoon, similar to similar to what we saw with Bobby Dahlbeck and, and Cordero? Um, I also don't know what did the Red Sox do with Dahlbeck. You know, do they keep him around? Kind of curious to see what happens there. Um, because clearly, you know, has the ability to play corner infield positions, but his bat is just way too inconsistent for me. Um, I really can't see him being on this team next year. So, you know, I think that, I, I don't know. I don't really see a spot for him next year, if I'm being perfectly honest. But I think that having these young guys coming in, hopefully, you know, all signs point to them grabbing regular roster spots next year. So, you know, I, I honestly think that's it for the Red Sox. We'll obviously be talking about them uh, plenty this offseason. Red Sox will uh, finish the homestand, or finish the season, I should say, with a three-game homestand against Tampa Bay, 7-10, 7-10, tonight and tomorrow, and then 4 o'clock on Wednesday, and that will be the end of the season. So... You know, we'll certainly be talking Red Sox if they are making any moves um, in the offseason. You know, I'm hoping that the Red Sox can get some work done with Bogart's endeavors um, in the offseason and kind of just figure that out and just kind of be over, be finished with that so we can talk, stop talking about it. Um, so I think looking at... The Revolution, that's where we were going to do next. Um, the Revs, unfortunately, uh, before the game even started on Saturday afternoon, uh, were eliminated from postseason contention. So, um, unfortunately, no playoffs for this team. Um, and it was really unfortunate because the Revs did uh, get Dylan Barrero and Giacomo Brioni in the lineup on Saturday, which... 
was really frustrating for me. Just like, you saw how well Barrero played at points this season, and then he got hurt and never really heard from him. You know, Vrioni kind of couldn't really get into the lineup consistently, and, you know, great to see him score, but, you know, it's just, it's disappointing with this group because they had a lot of talent, you know, clearly winning the, winning the, uh, uh, it's not the President's Trophy, uh, but just like, you know, winning the Supporter Shield, that's what it is for the, for the most points, um, and, you know, setting the league record for points. You know, you figured that this year was going to be maybe not just as good, but like still a good solid team. But, you know, I think it's just the beginning of the season threw them for a loop, you know, playing in all these extra games and, you know, guys really weren't healthy for the majority of the season. But, you know, it was good to see them get a win in their final home game. You know, it's always good. You always want to win your home finale, but it just was like, it was a thought of, like, what could have been, you know. It was great to see Gustavo Bo get a goal, you know, at the end of the game. You know, has had a penchant for scoring late-game uh, late goals in his Revs career, but you would have liked him to be more healthy this season. You know, you would have liked to see more of him and Barrero as a, as a duo, you know. And it's unfortunate because we know how good Carlos Heel is you know, winning MVP last year and being, you know, the best player in the league by kind of by a mile. Um, it just never really happened for this group offensively. Um, and, you know, defensively, there were letdowns. You know, George Petrovich was unbelievable this season. You know, he was kind of the one bright spot that, okay, you could feel good about, you know, I don't know how much longer he's going to be with the Revolution considering how well he played, but... You know, this is a group that I think you would have liked to have seen a better finish from. Um, you know, not a whole, not really nothing to play for in their last um, regular season game in Chicago on uh, Sunday next week at 2.30. But, you know, I do think that there is reason to be excited for next year that the Revolution will not have to play in any you know, Champions League or, or not Champions League, but the, uh, whatever, like, tournament they put, the CONCACAF Champions League. No, it's not, like, the Champions League, but, like, the CONCACAF Champions League. You know, if they won't have to play in games like that, and hopefully there can kind of just be a more normal start to the regular season. You know, you can get Vrioni healthy and ready to go. You can have Barrero healthy, ready to go. Gustavo Bo, Carlos Hill, you know, hopefully the Revs can get uh, Tajuri Shradi healthy. Um, it was revealed that he had, like, an injury or something that he didn't tell the team about. So hopefully he can be ready to go by the time the season starts. Um, but just kind of disappointing, you know, that this is a team that entered the season with a lot of hope, and here they are not, not being one of the best seven in the conference, which I think at the beginning of the season you really thought was unimaginable, but, you know, the Revs made some moves in the offseason that didn't really work. You know, losing Tejan Buchanan was tough. Losing Matt Turner was tough. I mean, obviously, that ended up not really mattering because Petrovic was unbelievable, but 
you know, you saw regression, unfortunately, from this team offensively. And, you know, you hope that there can be more continuity with the offensive, with the, uh, like, midfielders and forwards next season. You know, that those guys can play consistently and get into a rhythm. Because I think at full health, there's, there's, no, there's no way that this team would have missed the playoffs. Um, but I think that, hey, sometimes that's sports. Sometimes you don't have all your guys available for most of the games. You know, injuries happen. It's part of the, it's part of sports. So, you know, I think here's hoping that this is a team that can get off to a better start next year, you know, play with a little bit more continuity. Uh, but they got good players. And I think that that's the important thing. And that's the important thing to remember with this organization that, you know, things have changed since Bruce Green has come in. And look, I don't think he did his best coaching job this year. You know, there were a lot of lineup decisions that I think were kind of questionable. But I think that the culture that you hope can endure here is a culture that, okay, we're taking this seriously. We are bringing in players that will help us win. We're bringing in players that will help us win another supporter shield, will help us win an MLS Cup. And I think you've seen kind of a change in terms of how the ownership and the whole, you know, organization is serious about building, you know, a championship quality quality team. So again, Rev's final preseason game or uh, Rev's final regular season game uh, in Chicago Sunday at 2.30. That's their final game. So I think that that's going to do it for talking about our local teams. We're now going to get into some um, NFL week four, take a look at the uh, scores this week. Obviously the uh, Bengals victory over the Dolphins on Thursday night football was uh, marred by the uh, scary incident of uh, Tua Tungabailoa having to be stretched off the field. Um, you know, this is just the whole situation just sucks. And it's unfortunate because it never should have happened. Um, and it just is, I don't know, it just blows my mind that this is, you know, professional sports and it's a league that unfortunately is putting players in a position where, you know, they're suffering serious injuries. And, you know, whether the NFL is at fault, whether the Dolphins are, I mean, it's just the whole, the whole thing is a mess. Um, he should absolutely have not been allowed to continue in the Dolphins' last game against the Bills. I mean, he, I mean, we all saw the replay. We all saw him stumbling. And to me, it was very clear that he had suffered a serious head injury. And unfortunately, he's cleared to play. And, you know, something bad happens in that Bengals game. And... It's just like, it's one of those scary things where you immediately don't even think about football. Your immediate thought is, oh my God, you know, your immediate thought doesn't go to football playing. It goes to life and it goes to, you know, it's hard because it's like, it's almost like, it's hard, it's hard for me not to get emotional because it's just like, whenever you see just a horrific injury like that, you think, okay, what's next for them? You know, 
are they going to be able to play sports again? Are they going to be able to, you know, live a normal life? And I think that that's the dangerous part about this sport and, you know, other contact sports that things like this can happen, but it's just frustrating that this particular situation is absolutely avoidable. And look, is there blame all across the spectrum? Probably, you know, there could be a thing about, you know, kind of the culture of the game. Is there a little bit of blame on Tua that, you know, did he really want to push himself to get back into the game? And I think that's where it's like, you have to have someone that steps in and says, no, this is not okay. You cannot go back in the game. You cannot play this game. You know, and I think that it's it's easy for the Dolphins organization to put him back out there because look, they're 3-0. They're a team that's one of the pests in the NFL. And I'm, and I'm not trying to say that they're not blameless because they absolutely are, but there could be a thought that, okay, we finally have a really good team. We don't want to have our best player missing games. And I think, or our quarterback missing games, you know, and it's just too bad that, you know, that is kind of the overwhelming thought that, okay, we need him to play. We can't afford to have him not play. And it's just like, I just, I just don't understand why we can't have, why we can't take player safety serious. Why this league just will not take player safety seriously. I don't think they do. And I don't think they ever do or ever will. Um, I think that unfortunately, you know, the person that they fired, you know, the unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant or, you know, whatever, you know, it's the league trying to find a fall guy and trying to be like, okay, this is the guy that let him back into the game. You know, he should be fired and rightfully so, but there should be more accountability from this league. And I just think that unfortunately you've seen kind of time and time again that there really isn't any accountability in this league if it comes to player safety, when it comes to players, you know, getting in trouble for domestic violence. And, you know, it's just, it's just a joke. It really is. And it's just unfortunate that, you know, it has to come at the expense of player safety and player health in this, in this situation. Um, it's just sad, you know, it really is. And I just think that, you know, th- this could have been handled way better and it should have been. And, you know, my thought is not about can Tua get healthy to be able to play this season. It's can he be okay to live a normal life? Because I'll be honest, that was the first thing that went through my head when I you know, saw him lying on the field and his upper body seizes up and it's like, oh my God you know, I don't think he's playing football ever again. And, you know, it's just frustrating because it could have been avoided. Um, So that's really all I'm going to say about that. But, you know, Bengals end up winning. Even their record at 2-2, a good game for Joe Burrow and the Bengals' offense. The, obviously, Patriots-Packers, we covered that. There was the first uh, London game this season with the Vikings beating the Saints 28-25 to with uh, Will Lutz 
attempting a 61-yard field goal that would have tied the game. You get the you get the uh, what's known as a double doink with uh, the ball that uh, hit the upright and then hit the crossbar and bounced out. So the Vikings get the win. They are three and one now with the win over the Saints. Uh, the Falcons tipping the Browns 23 to 20, so they even their record. The Patriots play the Browns in two weeks. The Cowboys beating the Commanders 25 to 10. Cooper Rush. 3-0 as a starter, so the Cowboys uh, continue to play good football with him. CeeDee Lamb had 97 yards and a touchdown, so good win for the Cowboys. The Seahawks hang on in Detroit, 48-45. to You know, this is a Lions team Patriots are playing next, giving up 48 points to the Seahawks. You know, yikes. Uh, Jared Goff with a big game for Detroit with 378 yards and four touchdowns. TJ, TJ Hawkinson, 179 yards and two touchdowns. So Patriots have their hands full with him. Uh, but the Seahawks get the win to even their record at 2-2. Two and two. Uh, The Titans outlasting the Colts 24-17, despite 356 yards from Matt Ryan. Uh, Titans even their record at 2-2. Two and two. The uh, Giants with the win over the Bears, 20-12. The Giants are 3-1, and... One and uh, Saquon Barkley is back, folks. 146 yards on the ground in this game. So the Giants improved to 3-1, and one, Bears at 2-2. Two and two. The Eagles with a rain-soaked win over the Jags, 29-21. Good kind of grinded-out win for the Eagles. Uh, the Jags with an early 14-0 lead, but they end up losing. You know, that's a Jacksonville team that has kind of a lot to be excited about, but uh, the Eagles get the win remaining the or becoming the only undefeated team left in the league the uh, Jets outlasting the Steelers 24 to 20 comeback win for the Jets as they get their second win of the season Steelers drop to one and three Bills and the Ravens this was came of the, this was the game of the day Bills beat the Ravens 23-20 uh, Ravens Dropping another game, blowing a big second-half lead like they did in Week 2 against the Dolphins and like they almost did to the Patriots last week. Um, there are major concerns for me for this Ravens team. Um, you know, just a horrific decision by John Harbaugh to go for it with the game tied 20-20. to You know, inside the five-yard line. And look, I understand going to get score touchdown, but I just, you have to take points there, you know, especially with the game tied. I really don't understand how that was even a decision. You know, I could kind of understand it if the Ravens were up by three, that going for a touchdown would have essentially ended the game, but not with the game tied, you know, and there was like three plus minutes to go. So, you know, Lamar Jackson throws an interception in the end zone Bills get it, go down the field, kick an easy winning field goal. So um, just a horrific coaching decision by the Ravens. Um, Bills get their third win of the season with the game-winning field goal. The Chargers keeping the Texans winless with a 34-24 win. Big game for Austin Eckler. He had three touchdowns in this one. Chargers improved to 2-2. Two two. Texans fall to 0-3-1. Damian Pierce, however, 
had a huge game, 131 yards and a touchdown, including a 75-yard score. The Cardinals outlasting the Panthers 26-16, a good second-half rebound game for Kyler Murray and the Cardinals. So they win 26-16, another really tough outing for Baker Mayfield through a couple of interceptions. Panthers fall to 1-3. and three. The Raiders finally get their first win with a home win over the Broncos, 32-23. A big game for Josh Jacobs and for Devontae Adams. Both of them had over 100 yards rushing, or over 100 yards rushing for Jacobs and 101 yards for Adams through the air. So really important win for the Raiders. Broncos drop to 2-2. Two and two. And then last night on Sunday Night Football, uh, the Chiefs dominate the Bucks. 41 to 31. Big offensive explosion for the Chiefs, who improved to 3 and 1. Bucks fall to 2 and 2. Brady was really good in this game, but their defense definitely let them let them down. The Chiefs scoring touchdowns on their first four possessions, I believe. So 41-31 final score. Chiefs improved to 3 and 1 and in the game tonight. The Rams will travel to Santa Clara to take on the 49ers. Rams 2 and 1. 49ers one and two, 49ers, 49ers favored by a point and a half in this one. So should be a good game. Matthew Stafford, Jimmy Garoppolo now taking over for the injured. Trey Lance, very excited to watch this game. It's always a great, great games when both of these teams play. So looking forward to that this week. We're now going to get to Major League Baseball as we have entered the final week of the season couple teams clinching playoff berths. The Padres clinching um, a playoff berth, first playoff berth since 2006 with a win yesterday. The uh, Mariners are into the postseason for the first time since 2001. So a great story for them as they hit a walk-off home run to clinch a postseason berth. Um, you may have seen a call on Twitter from there. A TV announcer, which was really, really cool. Uh, but Mariners back in the postseason. So really exciting there. The Braves with a sweep of Mets this weekend. They move closer to clinching the division. Uh, Albert Pujols was honored pregame yesterday and then hit his 700-second second home run of his career. So good, exciting stuff there. Um, so we're going to take a look at the standings with a couple of games left to go. I think the playoffs are pretty much decided at this point in the American League, at least in the National League. I think there might still be a question of one team, but the playoff teams are set. Still could be a change in terms of the seeding, but the Yankees winning the AL East, Cleveland winning the Central, Houston winning the West, and then the wild card teams are Toronto, Seattle, and Tampa Bay. So things will work a little bit differently in the playoffs with the extra wild card teams. So how it works is the teams with the two best records in the league they get a bye, and then the team. The wild card team with the best record plays the <clears throat> plays the other division winner, and then the two lowest wild card teams 
play each other, and those four teams compete in a best-of-three postseason series. So the first team to win two games then advances to the division series, where the team with the worst record that makes it out of the like tiebreaker round, or I don't know what the what that round is called, then would play the team with the best record, and then the other team would play the other team. So you're looking at uh, Toronto being in that number one spot, so they would be most likely uh, to play Cleveland in the first round, if you want to say that. And then you'd likely see Tampa Bay against Seattle. And then you would see the Yankees and Houston get a bye through to the Division series. So currently, Toronto has a two and a half game lead over Seattle with four games to go for Seattle. So it seems likely that Toronto will get that first spot. And then Seattle is a game and a half ahead of Tampa Bay. So you're likely seeing Tampa Bay playing um, in Seattle to start that uh, first series. I don't know what the official name of it is, but anyway. Um, in the National League, you have Atlanta and the Mets um, that have clinched playoff spots. St. Louis has clinched, the Dodgers have clinched, and the Padres have clinched. So there is one more playoff spot up for grabs between the Brewers and the Phillies. I believe the Phillies are up by a game and a half in the National League standing. So... Atlanta with a two-game lead in the division, so they look likely that they are going to clinch the division. And so the Dodgers have already clinched the best record, so Dodgers will get a bye. The Braves most likely will get a bye. And then you would likely see the Mets play against either... You'd see the Mets play against either the Phillies or the Brewers. And then the Padres would play the Phillies or the Brewers uh, most likely. Take a look at the, quickly at the wild card standings in the National League. Milwaukee is actually two games behind Philadelphia with three games to play, so it seems likely that Philly will clinch that final postseason spot. Um, then the Mets or the Braves will have that top wild card spot, followed by the Padres, who are actually just a game up on the Phillies. So it is a possibility that 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 changes between the Phillies, the Padres, and the Brewers that two of those teams are getting in. Or, excuse me, no, Phillies and Brewers. One of those teams are getting in. The Padres clinched yesterday. So, don't worry, because uh, Eric Bellier will be joining me on Guest Friday this week to break down the entire uh, postseason field. So, looking forward to talking with Eric, so that'll be fun. We'll kind of break down the postseason for you. So, we're going to move on, talk a little bit about... Some NHL notes. I believe that the Predators and the Lightning are opening the season at some point this week. Trying to find the events for this season. So it is, or no, excuse me, it is the Padres, or, oh my god, it's the Predators against the Sharks. Um, and that will start on Friday this week. There will be the Friday and Saturday of this week. The two teams will play in the Czech Republic um, to open the season, the NHL Global Series. 
in the Czech Republic, and then later on this season, um, during the season, there will be a global series in Finland where the Blue Jackets and the Avalanche will play a couple games in Finland. So just some other notes from around the league. Uh, Trevor Zegers day-to-day for the Ducks as he had to leave a preseason game the other day. Uh, Jake Allen signing a two-year extension with the Canadians, and then Calvin DeHaan signing a one-year deal with the Hurricanes after a professional uh, tryout. The Bruins do currently still have Anton Strawman on a professional tryout, so we'll kind of see if they do give him um, a roster spot, or do give him a contract, I should say. Um, and then I just got a report just now, Taylor Hall is likely to miss the Bruins' season opener against the Capitals, but, you know, be curious to see if he can return at some point. Hopefully the injury isn't anything too serious in the NBA. We've had a couple of preseason games um, that have gone on recently. A couple of teams are playing overseas. Um, the... Uh, Miami Heat coming to terms with Tyler Hero on a new four-year deal worth $130 million. The Grizzlies and Steven Adams agreeing to a new two-year extension. Um, and Larry Nance and the Pelicans agreeing to a two-year contract. Um, so season starts October 18th. Celtics and the Sixers and I think the Warriors and the Lakers will start the season. So we'll keep you updated on preseason stuff as that happens. Um, we're going to close today with a little bit of college football. We'll take a look at the new rankings because there are a lot of changes, not necessarily at the top. Well, actually, there was a change at the top this week. Um, Alabama being the, or Alabama and Georgia switching spots um, as Georgia had to sweat out a game against unranked Missouri. Um, Georgia was able to win, but definitely why Alabama's number one is they took care of um, Arkansas on Saturday. Bryce Young did have to leave the game with an injury, but Alabama far more impressive. So they are the new number one. The rest of the top six stayed the same. Oklahoma State up to seventh. Uh, Some big risers this week, Ole Miss rising from 14 to 9 after their win against Kentucky. Wake Forest jumping up to 15 after their win against Florida State. Kansas State jumping from 25 to 20 with their win this week. And then you have a bevy of new teams that are into the top 25. Um, LSU at 25, Cincinnati at 24, Mississippi State at 23, Syracuse at 22, Kansas at 19, UCLA at 18, and TCU at 17 after they blew out Oklahoma, 55 to 24. So Oklahoma fell out of the rankings. Uh, Washington fell from 15 to 21. Kentucky falling from 7 to 13. And NC State dropping out of the top 10 after losing on the road to Clemson. So looking at some games this coming week on Saturday. Tennessee, 8th ranked against 25th LSU. That is happening as a noon game on ESPN. 17th ranked TCU and 19th ranked Kansas will play at noon on FS1. Looking at some other ranked games at 3.30 on Fox, 11th ranked Utah, 
and 18th ranked UCLA. So those are the only ranked games that you're getting this week. So I think that's going to do it for me uh, this week, folks. Obviously, uh, keep your eye out on Friday for the new guest Friday that I'll be doing with Eric Bellier as we preview the Major League Baseball postseason. Um, as always, you guys can feel free to follow on Spotify, you know, uh, uh, rating, review on Apple Podcasts, you know, always appreciate constructive criticism. Um, and as always, you can always reach out to me um, on Twitter and on Facebook, whether it's through, um, you know, the podcast pages, um, or if you want to send a message to me personally, you know, I always love hearing from people that listen to the podcast and, you know, always open to talk about new things that maybe you folks want me to talk about. But um, anyway, have a great rest of your week, and we will talk to you on Friday.